You're listening to Mammal Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at mammalwatching.com slash podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the second full episode of the Mammal Watching podcast with me, John Hall from New York. And me, Charles Foley from Minneapolis. How are you doing, John? I'm good, Charles. Um, I just got back from Mexico yesterday, uh, along with about 10,000 bug bites. Um, it was a mammal trip, of course. I was there with a friend, Juan Cruzado, who's a Mexican biologist, and he's uh, extraordinary. He, not only does he know a lot about the mammals, he knows just about every other biologist in Mexico. So he got us into places which would be hard to visit otherwise. Um, I, I was up, we were up in Sinaloa, beautiful dry forest, but in cartel country, um, then went down to the Sonoran Desert and ended up in Hidalgo, quite close to Mexico City. Um, I will be doing a trip report, and perhaps we can talk about this another time, but uh, spoiler, uh, 36 species of mammals, at least 15 of them, at least 15, new for me. So I'm pretty happy today. I bet you are. And one of those mammals was a Megadontomus, the uh, yes. <laughs> giant deer mouse. Which is mega, a mega. It was a, that's super a, animal. It's a big range extension. And it's, there's hardly any records of that species. So that was very exciting. None of us knew what it was when we caught it. And how are you doing? So I'm doing very well. And I have been fixated on a video that was shared recently on a new Facebook site about East African mammals, showing what I think is absolutely the coolest rodent on the planet. Now, I know that many people think that one rodent's pretty much like another, but I suggest that anyone in that camp really needs to watch the video of this animal, which is called Lophiomus and otherwise known as a, a maned or crested rat. And the video, it was posted by a guy called Tyler Davis and taken somewhere in the vicinity of Mount Kenya. And although it's a mainly a nocturnal species, it, it does occasionally venture out during daytime. And in this video, you can see one of these walking through some trees during the day. And for those of you who haven't seen a picture of Lophiomis, it's basically a large rodent about the size of a rabbit and has a beautiful long black and white fur. But what happens is when the animal gets alarmed or excited, it raises its crest and it exposes a set of black, white, and brown stripes all along its side. And these stripes, they sort of function as a warning coloration in the same way that stripes on the skunks do. But unlike a skunk, the Lophiomis doesn't actually have any of its own chemical defenses. Instead, what it's done is evolved an amazing behavior that was only discovered recently and is actually written up in a paper co-authored by Jonathan Kingdom. So what it does is that it chews on the bark of the Acocanthra tree, which is also called the poison arrow tree because it was widely used by hunter-gatherer tribes as the source of their poison arrows. And then what the Lophiomus does is it, it licks this poison onto the fur on its side and this fur has special hairs that absorb the poison. So then if an animal tries to eat the Lophiomis, it'll get a mouthful of toxins and spits the rat out. Or if it ingests a whole lot of poison, then the predator could actually die. And these rats also have really thick skin and heavy skulls. Like the, the skulls look almost like turtle skulls, which suggests that they're adapted to survive being chewed on by a predator. But the thing is, it's still a mystery how the rat itself actually avoids dying from chewing this poison. And this is the only mammal species that's known to do this. 
European hedgehogs, they're known to chew up toads and then rub toad toxins on their spines, which makes them irritating to predators. And I should say that the white bellied hedgehog in Africa actually does a similar thing because I once picked up a dead one in Terengiri National Park and I stabbed myself with a spine and my finger became swollen and infected. But obviously the Lophiomus takes this to a whole new level and can actually cause death in the attacking animal. And not only that, if all that wasn't cool enough, um, there was some work done by a lady called Sarah Weinstein and others who trapped some Lophiomus and kept them in enclosures. And they suggest that the species may actually be monogamous, which again is really unusual in mammals. So all this of course means that Lophiomus should be at the very top of any mammal watchers list of most desired species. And if you wanna see it, you'll have to go to East Africa as it's endemic to that area. And it seems to be most widely spread in Kenya, Ethiopia and Somaliland. Although the weird thing is that in Kenya, it's mostly associated with Afro-Montane areas, whereas in Somalia, it's found in bushlands or close to sea level. So obviously it's got a pretty wide habitat range. And I'm guessing if you do go and look for them that around Mount Kenya is probably the easiest place to see them. They apparently occasionally will den under a lodge or a house, and then they can be quite easy to find for a while before they take off again. And not only that, but because they're poisonous, they're apparently uh, not terribly shy. So when you do see one, if you do see one, then you should hopefully get a pretty good view. So anyway, I haven't seen a live one, but many years ago, I did see a dead one on the road between Nairobi and Samburu. So next time I'm in Kenya, I will definitely be trying to find one. You and me both. They are an extraordinary beast. They've, they've been on my top 21 list for a while. Um, they've just moved up a few places after that. Passionate, um, passionate account. What a fabulous animal, Charles. Thanks. Yeah, and I guess you're hoping to get out there this summer, aren't you, John? I'd like to. Um, Kenya's open, so yeah. we'll see. It's a bit too early to make plans, but I'm hoping to. And if I do, then guess what I'll be looking for? <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Okay, so we're very pleased to be joined today with a good friend of mine. Um, you'll know her reports from the site, um, but we're here with Cheryl Antonucci. Now, Cheryl, I'd like to start off with asking you um, just to tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, where you live and what you do. Yeah, hey, I, um, I live in Richmond, Virginia in the United States. Um, I am a veterinarian um, and I do two different things. I work at an emergency and critical care facility treating dogs and cats. That's the job that probably helps fuel my expensive little hobby of mammal watching. But I'm also the head veterinarian for the Metro Richmond Zoo. Um, which is right outside Richmond. And we have 2,000 uh, animals at our uh, facility, including a wide diversity of mammals and a large um, group of primates, which to me are the, the best mammals on the planet. And I've been working with exotics uh, for, since I was 18 years old. It's a long, long time. Excellent. Well, and so you've been working um, with animals since you're 18 years old, but how do you actually get into mammal watching? Oh, I probably got into mammal watching. Um, I always had an interest in animals um, since I was a, a young person. Um, my parents did the typical 1970s parenting and uh, dropped me off at my grandparents every weekend. And my grandparents, what they felt like the correct thing to do then was to go to the zoo every weekend. Um, so I started being very, very interested in uh, mammals and just wildlife in general. And then my parents were always very pro-travel. Um, and we did a lot of traveling when I was younger, but once I graduated university, 
Um, my father decided that going to South Africa was probably the, the right thing to do. So we took a family trip to South Africa. And the first thing that I did, um, we did was we um, flew into Kruger National Park and when we landed and there was a giraffe hanging out at the airport. And I think I was uh, hooked from that moment on. Okay, that's really weird. I just, uh, <laughs> I just have to say that a, a giraffe in the Kruger National Park um, was what got me <laughs> interested in really? wildlife as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, I was the same way. I was like, oh my gosh, a giraffe. Yeah, yeah. it was a magical drive from the airport to our lodge, which I can't remember. I mean, I was young. I can't remember the name of the lodge, but there was the draft at the airport, which I was flabbergasted. Um, I got yelled at for photographing Impala every five seconds because, of course, I'd never seen one. And we saw rhinos and we saw sable antelope. Um, we saw clip springers. There was a steenbok. I mean, just animals I'd never thought about before. And that trip, South Africa, is always going to play a special place in my heart because it was my first legit mammal watching trip that I ever did. Fantastic. Fantastic. So I think I know the answer to this one, Cheryl, and as anyone who's traveled with you would also know, but, but do you have a favorite group of mammals by any chance? <laughs> it's so weird. I had to really think long and hard on it, but non-human <laughs> primates um, definitely win the cake. Um, there's a lot of reasons why I like them. Um, and I know there's some people in the community that I've read their comments about nah, mammals. I mean, primates are not very interesting to watch. They are the most interesting group of primates. I mean, an interesting group of mammals to watch, in my opinion. Um, majority of them are in family groups. There's all kinds of different activities that they do. Usually the, the youngsters are always wanting to interact with people. Um, they can live in all kinds of different ecosystems. Um, but unfortunately, two thirds of them live in rainforest type ecosystems. So you think about mammals in peril, um, you know, they are definitely at the head of the list. Um, you know, the, the sad thing about the, these guys, you know, you think about flags, ship species. You know, a lot of people want to talk about birds or insects or things like that. Or, but primates are also big flagship species, in my opinion, about the health of an ecosystem and the health of an area. And, you know, 65% of primates on the planet live in four countries, Brazil being number one. There's about 100, 110 species that live in Brazil, Madagascar being number two, followed by close Indonesia and the DRC. You think about all the management of wildlife in all four of those countries, it's, it's not, it's pretty grim. And, you know, again, 65% of primates live in those four countries and most primates are considered either endangered or critically endangered at this point. Um, so I think they're an exciting group of mammals to look forward to. Um, I think in someone's lifetime, it would be difficult to get the entire set, um, you know, and you can read 18 different lists on how many primates there are on the planet right now. The last one I read was about 505 um, from the IUCN. Of, of course, primate people love to split, yay. Mm. Um, so that changes, I think, every five seconds. Um, but even it's still, I think it's a great group of animals to try to go and see. There's nothing like it, in my opinion. Yeah, and as you say, it's also, I mean, as people like Russell Mittermeier would say, it's very worthwhile to, to be a primate oh, ticker because you're going to promote these little patches of forest where some of these species are clinging on and you're really making a difference, so. Absolutely. And all the places they live, there's other mammals too. So even if you go on a trip just to see a specific primate, like what I usually tend to do, um, you're going to see other things as well. Yeah. And then there's a little, there's a little things with feathers in there too that can keep other people. 
Um, and where, where are you with your primate listing? Uh, do you have most of the ones? Yeah, I'm at 171 species of primate. So probably not as high as what John is. He's probably ahead of me. I actually sat down last night and really quickly, because uh, I am a lister, which I'm proud of, whatever. Um, I'm at 752 mammals um, as of today. So and 171 oh. of those are primates. Congratulations. So, Fantastic. Wow. Yeah, not 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 like not John like 1994 level. Um but uh I think not too shabby. Oh, oh 44. Okay. Yeah, yeah, uh, but I think not too shabby for someone. You know, I would love to I mean definitely there's some primates that I am obsessed with. Um I read your lovely report of your Alphys Gwenin report there Charles. That would be such a great one to see. Um the, the, but one, sorry. The Alphys Gwenin in Rwanda. Oh, 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 you mean the one that I spent uh, time walking around yeah. and not seeing yeah thank you yeah that one that, that one's up. great mm, yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. anytime yeah I had a, a good friend of mine that worked on habituating chimpanzees in Rwanda um, as part of her experience post-university and one of her leaders had wanted to see Al the Alphys went in and had seen them the whole time the two years that she was in Rwanda she saw them once ouch so yeah yeah <laughs> it would be a really cool it'd be a really cool primate to see but Yes, indeed. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to go back there in a hurry, but uh, <laughs> yes, I could tell you exactly where I didn't see them. Um, yeah. So I, I'm going to like hazard a wild guess that um, some of your favorite mammal watching trips have revolved around uh, primates. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you want to tell and us what, about some yeah, of those? Yeah, no, no. I, uh, my, my favorite mammal watching <laughs> trip of my entire life, and I don't think anything is going to compare um is going to see mountain gorillas in rwanda and um i i did that i think it was about 13 years ago uh with a good friend of mine and we decided to book two different treks to go see them and we also went to do like the golden monkeys which they have a, a large mega troop of golden monkeys about 800 of them that you can see that are super easy mm -hmm. um i i really enjoy memo watching and I hike, but I'm not a great hiker. Um, definitely falling is part of one of my um, sports, but I'll do it. I definitely will do it. So one of the things for anybody that knows about going to trek for mountain gorillas is usually they put you in a big, huge circle and the trackers look at everybody and they try to look at everybody's level of fitness and then they, they put you off into little groups. So I, my friend and I made it a point to tell the people not to be fooled by our youth or our youthful looks and to put us into the group with the most crippled individuals because um, we felt like that would be a good hiking experience for us. So laughing, they finally agreed. Um, and my friend and I uh, were put into a group with maybe some people, all Europeans that were 80, 80 plus. So we felt strong, like we felt good. Um, and they picked, I can't remember the name of the group, but they picked the group that they were going to let us go and trek and see. And they warned us that unfortunately the bamboo was fermenting and that all the gorillas we were going to see were going to be intoxicated. Um, so that sounds great to me, an easy trek. Let's go see some drunk gorillas and, and kind of go from there. But unfortunately for us, um, the silverback um, was being challenged um, by two uh, rogue silverbacks. Um, and so he was quickly moving um, his family group over and over again. And one of the things that they'll let you do is they'll let you trek for a very extended period of time, to my dismay, um, to find the families until they give up. Um, and so everything that we did was off trail. I think I fell a total, including holding a hand of the person that was carrying my things. I think I slid down a pathway with him at one point. Mm -hmm. Everybody else fell too. So I felt also pretty good about that. 
um, hiking up and down and up and down and up and down. Um, it took us about four hours until we got to our group. Um, the silverback was up in a tree and then his entire intoxicated family who probably didn't care less um, were sitting in the middle of an opening. Um, and all of them, including the baby had fermented bamboo in their arms. And we're pretty much rocking back and forth. Uh, we get to them and one of the blackbacks, who I counted 14 stalks of bamboo in his arms, saw my friend and I, my friend is also a blonde and I think he fancied them. Um, and it took like, I think about six trackers to block him repeatedly from trying to tackle my friend and I. Wow. It's a wonderful experience, <laughs> you know? I mean, a horrible hike, intoxicated, you know, great apes. Um, but it was probably one of the most magical things I'd ever seen. Um, you know, it looked like a, a frat party from when I was in university. Um, everybody, males, females, babies, everybody. Um, and so that was probably the, the greatest mammal washing experience of my life. Wow. And, and how did the uh, elderly Europeans do with a hike? You know, um, they also Are there a few a buried out there or what? <laughs> Maybe. You just don't know. Um, they also seem, the good thing is everybody was walking pretty slow, which made me feel like I was like the, you know, the, the star of the group. Um, so they all, there was a lot of panting, maybe some open mouth breathing with some of the Europeans, maybe from me, I just don't remember. I tried to block that part out. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was an interesting four hours of hiking through one of the most <laughs> difficult hikes to have one of the greatest experiences. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. It's uh, John, have you, um, have you been to Rwanda for the gorillas? I have, and I was elsewhere? probably there about the same time as you show. I was, I think I was there in 2006. Um, you probably had like the the big the strong group. You probably they looked at you and were like, "He can hike for 14 I hours." I was with a friend. I remember she was taking it very seriously. I mean, she's younger than me, but she she had a big stick and she was like really getting pumped for this for this hike. Yeah. And it, I think we were quite lucky. We went to see the group, the Diane Fossey's group, and it was they were meant oh, to nice. be the furthest away, but they were very convenient. They'd moved close, so it wasn't it wasn't too tough. But yeah, it's an extraordinary experience to to sit there. One Magical. came up and touched my leg, a young one, and it was just like, "This is crazy." And, um, yeah right really yeah 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 amazing beast but I, I do remember some man-eating nettles along the route over there certainly on the <laughs> uganda one which where we did it <laughs> and, uh, yeah i heard yeah. the uganda one was much more difficult and like i said I, I you know i love to see mammals i'm not the strongest hiker but i'll still i'll still do it but it just takes me a lot longer than some of the other people in this group so to speak that's why i usually hire private guides and you know i'll try to do as gentle as i can yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Where to go? It's uh, and um, any other uh, some major experiences uh, that you want to share with us? I was talking to you guys earlier about this. I also was talking about um, what I think is probably um, the most magical place on the planet. Um, despite the fact that I always think that the neotropics are are where I love to travel the most, um, my second favorite thing that I've done also is in Africa. Um, so I'm promoting Africa twice. Um, and that was my trip to Ethiopia. There, there were some amazing things, you know, obviously seeing the geladas in the Simeon Mountains and just sitting for an hour with geladas making all kinds of different noises. Um, you know, going to see the BBC studied group of Hamadryas baboons in Awash National Park and having like 200 Hamadryas in this oasis with waterfalls and lush greenery after being through desert was mm. also amazing. But I think one of the most beautiful places on the planet is the Bali Mountain National Park. Um, yeah. it, it, there's nothing like it in my opinion. Um, and not that canines are like my huge target, but uh, the wolf sightings that we had were absolutely amazing. Um, we had a really, really good guide. 
Um, we, I think we saw about nine different wolves all at, I mean, some of them were at like one meter away. I mean, they told us, you know, get out of the car, just stay by the car and the wolves. And we, we watched them actively hunting. Um, we watched groups of two to three wolves together and they were so relaxed um, that it was, there was nothing like it. Um, but one of my favorite things there is I was a little bit nervous. I really wanted to see a Bali mountain monkey when I was there. And our guide kept telling me it's really difficult. It's really difficult. There's a troop that hangs. We stayed at the Bali mountain lodge and there is a troop that's behind the lodge, but they're a little bit um, nervous and they are, you'd see them and they would run off completely. But there's another like mega troop of about 80 monkeys that hangs out but they shift locations. Um, and our guide was like, let's see if we can find that troop. And, you know, he was doing the whole typical, no promises, no promises. This is wildlife. You know, I can't promise anything. And in my head, I was like, yeah, we're going to, this is what we're going to do. And so we found a bunch of children standing on the, the side of the road. And so our guide asked them, you know, have you seen the monkeys? And they're like, yeah, they're, they're right over here. And in my head, I was like, oh no, they're probably talking about the colobus. They're not talking about the Bali, you know, cause there's colobus yeah. like everywhere there. And I was trying to, you know, have our guide interpret, not the colobus, not the big black and white shaggy things. And they're like, no, 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 no. Um, and so these two little boys, they must have been like 10, walked us, I don't know, like 15 meters from the side of the road. And we walked into this bamboo thicket and we were in the middle of it. And there was bamboo everywhere around us and about 80 monkeys just going about their day, completely unfazed by us. Um, and we just sat there for over an hour watching them, you know, groom each other and eat and like youngsters play. And again, it was one of the most beautiful places and having a sighting like that was like nothing that can compare. Fantastic. Uh, and the, so the barley monkey is, um, for those who don't know, it's it's a basically a form of vervet monkey or grivet monkey. Um, and it's, I think, but I didn't see them. I looked for them and I didn't know where to look when I was there back in 2007. So I'm envious, but did, do they look all that different from a regular vervet? Yeah, they really do. Um, they are much fuzzy. I mean, obviously it's a lot colder up in that national park. So they're a much like fuzzier monkey. They're probably about the same size and body conformation as a grivet monkey. Yeah. Um, but their main, like the trunk of their body is kind of like a brownish, like a rich brown, almost stably con color versus the grivet having like the typical like vervet coloring of all the gray. Um, and then they have kind of, you know, coloring ocean coming off their face and then kind of a pale whitish face. So they did look very different, Okay, so it's but same size and like same behavioral type things. Like I think if they could have stolen things from us, like we had a lot of grivets that, that stole things from us when we were in Ethiopia and felt pretty and you know pretty good about it i mean i have a great picture of a grivet monkey with an entire chunk of injera bread like in its mouth because i turned my head for two seconds and grabbed the food off my plate like a typical vervet would do That's naughty little monkeys <laughs> i love them but they're so bad they've, they've they've stolen many things from me in my lifetime those little guys everybody in that group <laughs> yeah i also managed to miss them uh, as well in uh, ethiopia really in okay yep yep no didn't uh didn't see any. I yeah. also so had a look around, but no, no, no luck. Yeah, we, so, we saw them twice. We saw the, the mega troop and then that they had told us about and then the ones behind the lodge. But the ones behind the lodge were what I like to call stranger danger monkeys. I don't know why, because I don't think anybody's persecuting them there. But as the call of us were pretty relaxed. But as soon as we saw one of them behind the lodge, immediately would run. So I don't know why, you know, I would think that People there aren't persecuting them. I think they want tourists to see them. But the, the mega troop that supposedly hangs out really close to um, the road is the one to try to go for. Got to ask some little kids, man. Sometimes kids are good for something. 
you know? <laughs> <Some of them. laughs> right, absolutely. That, the finding yeah. <laughs> and bringing beers. Absolutely. Can't think of too many other things, but those two certainly count. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's great that these um, species that, you know, when I went to Ethiopia, they were hardly known and like no one saw them. Oh, yeah. My guide had never seen them, didn't know where to look. And now, you know, there's there's locations. It seems like you found a really reliable place for them. It's this is happening. Oh yeah, definitely. Again. So it's it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have to admit, definitely. I also agree. The Soneti Plateau is is an amazing place. And the thing oh. that really struck me was the fact when I was there, certainly there were thousands and thousands of rodents. Oh yeah. So, oh yeah. Agreed. You know, you've, you've agreed. Got all the oh, the everywhere, and then you've got the yes. The, the, the giant mole rats, which are fantastic. They look like fantastic flippers with two eyes mm-hmm. on the sort of front of their yeah. head. Yeah, on Sesame like, Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's brilliant. And I think I drove our cook. We we, we had a, a, a Land Rover, a Land Cruiser, and uh, we had a guide with us. And the cook was was with us driving around. And I drove him completely mad, stopping every five minutes. Oh, let, 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 you know what, what's that species? And, oh, what's that? <laughs> and finally, he just said, "We need to get back." I said, "All right, okay, we're going back." <laughs> It is, it is amazing. There's so many roads. It's unbelievable. I did the same thing because I was like, I need to know what this is. I need to know what yeah. this is, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And the thing I noticed about when I saw the, after stopping every 10 seconds, like Charles to photograph every rat, um, when we finally saw wolves, it was, I think it was late in the day and it was blowing a gale. It was like a 50 K wind. Um, and we were probably a hundred meters from this wolf that was prowling around. And I just started just, rubbing my fingers together without making a sound that I could hear inside the car with the window open. And it looked, it heard. They must have incredible hearing. I think they, they're they hunting all these things by sound. It's just extraordinary that they could hear in that from that distance. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a magical, magical experience. So, I mean, there's so many great mammals to see in Ethiopia. So, I mean, I think it's definitely another place that, again, I'm here promoting Africa, Africa, but um, Brazil is still like where my heart is when it comes to, to mammal yeah. watching. And you've you've traveled a ton. Um, you've been to a lot of a lot of places, but we were talking about this earlier. Um, and you know, you're you're unusual, I suppose, for a mammal watcher in that you're a you're a woman, because most of us, you know, it's mainly men who at least who who sort of write on the website and post reports. Why do you yeah. think that is? Yeah, no, that that's a it's a great question that we were talking about earlier. Because it is true. I mean, most of the time when I even when I go on trips, even with one person, it's usually majority men. Sometimes their partners are with them. And then very rarely it'll be um, two women together. And usually when it's two women together, most people when I travel think that's me and my partner, (laughs) so to speak. I'm like, no, it's me and my friend. you know, I really, uh, I was using bird watching as an example, since, you know, bird watching is this multi-billion dollar industry for some weird reason, um, that uh, they did this study of um, American versus English bird watchers. Um, and they found that the, the people that are the hardcore listers, the people that are willing to spend the money on, you know, the different types of cameras and equipment and those little vests that they wear with all the pockets and things like that um, are men. Um, so we all know the vests um, are men. Um, but one of the things that I was reading actually before we started this today was this article that was written by, they interviewed seven young um, bird watching females. Um, and they said the same thing. They wanted to know, why do you think that it is that it's such a male dominated sport um, and not uh, more females do it? And I think it does come down to listing if you really want to think about it. Um, you know, 
statistically, I think most females are, are going to want to be in a small group um, and are not going to want to do these trips where they're going off <clears throat> John Hall by themselves um, in a car, hiring someone that maybe doesn't speak English to some country where, you know, statistically a woman could be raped or robbed or, or things like that. And it's a safety issue. And at least for me, you know, I'm, I've considered myself to be pretty bold about doing things, but going by myself and not having an established guide or not having a friend or a partner with me um, to travel is kind of a little bit of a, a nervous thing. Um, so that can kind of decrease the, um, the numbers. And then of course, there was a lot of things saying that this is a, a slightly sexist thing to say, but men typically tend to be more competitive um, across the board where women tend to be more passive and more, hey, you know, I'm going to sit here and watch this sighting of this animal for an extended period of time, mm -hmm. where, again, I'm just using bird watching as an example, because, you know, we're the, the little cousin of that sport, whereas a lot of listers are going to be, like, okay, I've seen it next. Okay, I've seen it next. What are we going to do next? And I've seen that too, not so much with mammal listers as with bird watchers I've been on trips, where the first time I went to Borneo, we had a group that was... Uh, I learned that, you know, group travel is bad. Um, we got to the lodge in the Danum Valley a day late and we joined up with four other people, all Americans. Um, they were all bird watchers. And I wanted to see an orangutan. I was like, I am going to do whatever I can see an orangutan. And we ended up joining up with the group and there was a single male orangutan and he climbed down a tree, walked in front of us, and then climbed up another tree, which is unheard of. Because orangutans, you know, the males will do it sometimes, but it's a very unsafe behavior. So it was magical. And there was a bird watcher that literally, I think we were like eight minutes in with a sighting and said out loud, oh, my God, we just saw orangutans yesterday. Do we really have to do this? And I, and I was like, okay, Lister, I was like, come on, regardless of what you like to see, this is like such, I mean, if, if there was like such an amazing bird thing like that, I would watch it as well, you know, secretly dreaming of mammals, but I would still yeah. sit there and watch it and want to do it. I also think like statistically, you know, I use, you know, I think men are more like, again, willing to buy all the different things. Like I use a heat scope as an example. I, the first time I ever used one was in Australia. And the second time I was there um, and I, I didn't really enjoy looking, trying to find things with a heat scope. Um, and then the second experience I had with a heat scope was with you and John um, in Brazil. And you know, you and Amber both kept asking me, do you want to look? And I was like, no, I'm good. Keep, keep, keep at it, keep at it. And um, I, uh, but it was absolutely amazing. Like what you found, mm. like the, that part of it, I, I don't enjoy some of the ways um, that you can see stuff as much as I, you know, I'd like to take the, the fruits of other people's bounty um, when it comes to things like that. Whereas again, I think the listing is more support like with men, despite my considering myself a lister hundred percent. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's very interesting. These difference differences in mentality um, and yeah. taking risks you might say taking men are willing to take risks or men are more stupid I don't know which it is but I certainly I've oh, certainly yeah, done things no. now looking back I think what the hell was <laughs> I thinking I mean this is just so crazy but you know I certainly yeah. mammal and I'm still here more or less so yeah you feel like yeah it's good yeah, yeah and it's on heat scopes, yeah. I don't think anyone enjoys using a heat scope oh um, yeah it's right. just you've got to put the work in and someone has to wield the thing so um yeah yeah, yeah I don't I enjoy saying yeah. I'm like you, Cheryl. I'm happy to feed on the from the scraps of John's table. So if he puts a time in, then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but going back to your uh, the original point, there was a there was a great paper 
that was written fairly recently. Um, and it was, it described, a, it was a student trip that went out to Tanzania. And this trip was actually led by some, um, some good friends of ours. And they set a challenge for these students. And these were all undergraduate students, right? Mm -hmm. So 18 to 22 year olds. And um, they set a challenge for these students to um, try and see and identify a hundred birds. And two of the students, one was a man and one was, was a woman, um, really sort of took up the challenge. And they really spent a lot of time out there looking at birds, etc. cetera. And um, the, the guy, he would just tap anyone who sort of knew anything about birds. He'd say, you know, tell me what the bird is. And he'd list it and you know, tick it off and then mm -hmm. go on to the next one and next one. So definitely it's like, you know, a twitch mentality. And he would like keep his running tally and everyone knew what his running tally was. And, and when they asked the girl, how many do you have? She would never tell him, right? So then it came to the final evening when they had to present their sort of final tally. How many birds did you see? And the, the guy had some very high number. And to be honest, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was way, way, way over a hundred. And the girl said, I saw a hundred species of bird. But for every one of those species, she had taken detailed notes of what it looked like, what it sounded mm -hmm. like. I think she'd done yeah. some drawings of it, et cetera. And I think that in many ways encapsulates the uh, slightly different attitudes between uh, men and women. Yeah, it's exactly like almost the same thing that, yeah, like what I think too, you know? You do, you really don't. I remember when I did my first trip report for John, it was to Peru. Um, I was like, oh, I don't know if he's going to want to read this. I don't know, this is going to be interesting. I've been reading his blog for a while, but I was like, I'm going in. I'm just going to send him this and see what he says, if he likes it. And at that point, I don't know that there were any women really that were really putting trip reports that I can think of. I think it was just all men. I think so, yeah. Yeah. You're a groundbreaker. Yeah. There you go. You broke right, the glass right. <laughs> <laughs> what are your next uh, targets now going to be? And what's your, as soon as we can actually start traveling again, of course. Well, I just got back from Ecuador um, a couple weeks ago. Um, I had a really, I just went for a week. It was just like a little baby, a baby. I just got my vaccine trip, but I had two trips that I've booked um, for Memorial Day weekend. I'm going to Paraguay um, to do my, my target there is going to obviously be the Palatigi. That'll be my last primate that I need to see in the Pantanal. So I'm pretty excited about that. Fingers can crossed. Can you describe to people what that is? Um, so it's a normal sized Titi monkey. Um, it's much paler in color than some of the classic, um, like the, the red fronted Titi that people think about or the brown Titi or the red brown Titi. This is a, this is a mid sized monkey we're talking about, isn't it? Oh, I apologize. Let me tell you. Yeah, it's a mid sized small monkey. Um, they are tend to be monogamous um, and have family groups. Usually the largest groups are maybe five or six individuals. Um, the pair will usually keep their offspring with them for a couple of years before they shoo them off. Um, they're very, very territorial. Um, one of the best things about them from a mammal watching point of view is the females, just like gibbons in Asia and males, um, will call to each other, yeah, um, part for territorial bonding and part for um, just telling other TT monkeys, hey, I'm here. If you come here, we will kill you type noises. So from that point of view, they can be um, not difficult monkeys to find if you know, you know, if you kind of follow the call to speak. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we really appreciate you talking to us about your mammal adventures and we hope uh, that you have many more in the future. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you, Cheryl. And if you want to read more of Cheryl's very ent entertaining and informative trip reports, 
then you could check out her reports from Panama, from Ecuador, from Ecuador, from the Sea of Oktosk in Russia, where she saw ribbon seals, which I'm super jealous of. And there's a bunch more on the site, but there are three of, of her favorites and mine. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Memo Watching with Charles Foley and John Hall. You can find other episodes at memowatching.com slash podcast. <laughs>